Good morning. It is fun to be back. By the way, I love that bumper. Holy, that's good. Love that bumper. And Nate, so good to see you. Nate's my man. I, uh, I don't know how many times I'd walk down to the end of the hall where his office was, and he would talk me off the edge of something that I was thinking or feeling or going to do. And I just, I just miss your wisdom, and I miss your influence in my life. It's good to see you. Let me pray, and let's jump in. Father God, we invite you into the space. We know you're everywhere, but we invite you here to speak to us, Father God, to convict us, to encourage us, to remind us. Fill us with your spirit, for your spirit is the one who glorifies Jesus, and we want to see the greatness of Jesus. Father, I would pray that whatever I would say that is not of me, not of you, that's just of me, that it would quickly be forgotten, for I will only tend to confuse But I know when I say your words after you, I can claim the promise in Isaiah 55 that your words never return to you without you accomplishing your agenda in the hearts of people. And we pray, Father, too, from James, that we would not be merely hearers of your word, nodding our head, taking a note, feeling convicted, but doing nothing about it, but we would be doers of your word, putting it into practice in our relationship with you and then with others. Now, with our heads bowed, let me give you a moment to pray. Maybe your prayer is just simply this. Father God, what do you have for me this morning? I want to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say good morning before we start to Forrest Glenn. Forrest Glenn, how are you? It's been a long time. It's good to see you. And also, I look around this room, and I recognize faces and have such good memories Of so many of you in this room, it's fun to be back. We have missed you. There is a painting in a church in Spain. In fact, it's in Borges, Spain, and it's called Behold the Man. Let me show you a picture. Behold the Man. And it's in the the worship center. It's in the chapel itself. But over the years, the moisture has begun to take away some of the color, and it began to fade, and it began to look like this. And there was a woman, an older woman, a parishioner, that went to the priest and said, listen, I'm an artist, and I think I can help restore this painting. I think I can make it better. And so she began to work on it with the permission of the priest, and she was able to get the tunic, and then as she began to work on the face, some things went terribly wrong to where it now looks like this. The BBC said, from England, they said, the once dignified portrait now resembles a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey in an ill-fitting tunic. Everyone said that she had such good intentions. Her heart was good, and she had good intentions. She wanted to make Jesus better, and yet it ended up being a disaster. Now there's a silver lining. Here's the silver lining. Now people pay from all around the world to come to see this painting. They pay. And now they take the money that they're paying to see this painting and they're supporting a senior center out of it. So there's a silver lining in it. But you know what? All through the ages, for 2,000 years, people have tried to improve Jesus. People have tried to make Jesus better. The seven ecumenical councils, the seven early ecumenical councils took place in the country that I'm currently living. Let me show you. They were designed to address issues where people thought they were going to make Jesus better. They were going to make the gospel better. They were heresies. 
and these counselors were called to address these heresies and these people that were teaching wrong things. They were incredibly sincere. They truly believed these things to be true. They thought they were going to help the gospel, but they were sincerely wrong. It brings us to our text today because really the first church council recorded for us happened in Jerusalem and it happened in Acts 15. So turn with me to Acts 15. Whether you're using your, uh, your device or your Bible is right underneath your seat, you can grab a Bible and turn with me to Acts 15. It's in the New Testament and you guys have been studying through it. Verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, there's an understatement, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. All right, let me pause there. Let me give you some context. Antioch, Antakya today, and today Antioch is in the corner of Turkey, but back in the day it was in Syria. It was one of the largest cities and most significant cities in the Roman Empire. Let me show you a map. Thank you. Oh, Jess, you are so amazing. I messed her up last service. You already fixed it. Now you see it up there squared. It's the first place where Christians were called Christians or little Christ's. If they could have an impact here, if these people could go, these men could go and say, listen, you're wrong, you need to be circumcised in order to become a follower of Christ, they would have a huge impact in the Roman Empire because how significant the city was. Now, let me give you a little bit of background behind this particular passage. Joe didn't have time to get to it last week, so I'm going to pick it up for him. And I want you to know that some of this comes out of the Jackson Crumb Study Bible, okay? I don't have a study Bible, but if I did, this would be one of the notes at the bottom. You have a guy named John Mark, and John Mark was traveling with Barnabas and Paul as they were going through Cyprus on the first missionary journey, and then they come into Pamphylia, which is Turkey, southern Turkey. In fact, they, they showed up at right here. They came into this port right here. That's 15 minutes from my house. It's by Duden Falls, this gorgeous falls here. And this is where they would have come in because about seven, ten miles up the road, the Roman road gave right from this port right up to the city of Perga. Now we're told that John Mark left them right here. Now go back to that map for me, will you, Jess? Now I want you to see where John Mark goes. If you take a look at this map right here, you're going to see that he goes from up there where it's Perga, he goes back down to Jerusalem. Now, what is taking place? I think what's happening is John Mark is watching Paul's theology kind of grow as his understanding as he's dealing with Gentiles as a very, very devout Jew. He's beginning to watch Paul get this thing figured out, and he's deeply troubled by it. Now, what's going on? Well, one, Paul changes his name. Now, he doesn't really change his name. He was born with two names. He was born with a Hebrew name, and he was born with a Roman name. His Hebrew name was Saul. His Roman name is Paul. He begins to use his Roman name because he's engaging more and more with Gentiles. And Gentiles are becoming followers of Christ. But he's not doing this. He's not doing what they said. He's not saying to them, you need to become circumcised and follow the law to be an authentic follower of Christ. And I think it troubles John deeply. To the point he says, I'm out of here. And he goes back to Jerusalem, and I think he tattletales on Paul. 
I think he gets around some very conservative folks who believe the exact same thing. You need to be circumcised. You need to become part of the covenant. We'll talk about that in a moment to become a follower of Christ. And they're the ones then to come up to Antioch to begin to talk to the Gentiles. In fact, it's so bad in the second missionary journey, which you'll look at next week, when Barnabas says, let's go back and revisit all the churches and let's take John Mark, Paul says, absolutely no way I'm not taking him. I mean, in the Greek, it is a very, very tough wording, the way in which they argued about this. Now, the good news is John Mark gets it together because John Mark is called a beloved son, for instance, or Paul says, I have need of him. So John Mark gets this thing figured out. But I believe what's stirring this right here is that John Mark went back and he said, Paul's not telling the Gentiles to become Jews. Now, just an aside, Don and I are going to lead a trip to the first missionary journey this fall or this spring, and we're going to go to Cyprus as well. And if you want to join us, talk to me afterward. We'd love to include you. Now, look at the summary here. Look, look what's being said. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so they sent Paul and they sent several others and they went down to Jerusalem and they were going to meet with the leadership of the team. So in verse 5, they're with the leadership of the team and they're beginning to have their conversation. And as at the beginning of this conversation, a couple of believers, followers of Christ said, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise circumcise them in order to in, in order them to keep the law man right there there it is the whole issue that Paul and Barnabas came down is now surfaced right here right in front of them notice what it says some believers and Pharisees Paul understood them because Paul was a Pharisee you know what? I am more sympathetic to them than I've ever been. You know, I read Galatians and I get mad at these Judaizers. But when I was studying this, I was sympathetic for the first time. Because why? Because I was thinking that they're probably going like this. We want you to experience so badly the blessings of the covenant. We're the covenantal people. We're Jews. We're the ones that God has selected. And circumcision is the mark of the covenant. We want you to become part of this so you can enjoy all that God intends for you to enjoy as a Jew. I believe they were truly sincere. I just believe they were truly, sincerely wrong. Again, let me just make sure we get the issue. Verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law. See, here's what they're saying. There are some Gentiles who became followers of God, the true God, the God of the Bible, and they were called God-fearers. And you might remember that when you were, went through Acts 10 and 11. Cornelius was a God-fearer. God-feared didn't get circumcised. They stopped short. They believed everything else, but they didn't get circumcised. Proselyte, though, was someone who came and got circumcised. And it was a big deal for a Gentile to get circumcised because the Greeks and the Romans didn't believe that you would cut anything on the body. They believed the body to be beautiful. That's why nudity was such a big thing to them. And so for a Gentile to be circumcised would immediately put you on the outs. But it was a big deal when someone became a Jew, a Gentile, stepped into that realm and got circumcised. All right, look with me at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, 
You know, I love this, and I just want to draw attention to it because it reminds us the church can argue and argue in a very good way, and it's healthy. I have been in elders' meetings. I have been in staff meetings. I have been in Nate's office, and we have argued. You argue graciously. You argue kindly, but you argue. You discuss. You debate. It's probably even a better word. Because it's in that wrestling that many times is when we began to hear God's voice. We would quote scripture to each other. We would push on each other's points. We would pray about it. And then we would get to a good place together. And that's exactly what the church does. We don't know if it was three hours, three days, or three weeks. But for some length of time, they got together and they did this wrestling. And then finally, in the midst of this conversation, Peter, Peter, who was Jesus' close friend, Peter, who was a, a key figure in the early church, Peter gets up to speak. Well, surely Peter is going to say something. So everybody stops and looks to Peter. And Peter starts off by saying, hey, guys, don't you remember the experience I had 10 years ago with Cornelius? Again, Acts 10 and 11. Don't you remember? I was waiting for lunch and I saw a vision and a sheet dropped from heaven and there were all these animals. And I heard God say, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And don't you remember, I shared with you that Cornelius has sent some people to get me, and I went to his house, and I went inside his house, which was a no-no for most Jews because it would make them unclean. But he goes in, and he talks with them about the gospel, and there seems to be some kind of response, and all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is poured out on them. Let me remind you what it says here in Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, the Jews, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. What did they experience? They had their own Pentecost moment. They had their own Acts 2 moment. Exactly what Peter experienced, exactly what those 120 experienced in the upper room, the church or the temple, which called the house, exactly what happened to those early disciples happens to these Gentiles. And it had to happen this way for Peter's sake. Peter needed to recognize, oh, it's true. The gospel is moving to the Gentiles. They aren't circumcised, and they aren't baptized yet. Their belief, their understanding came before, both of, or before baptism. They never were circumcised. Look at me, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. James, who was head of the church, who was the half-brother of Jesus, stops and looks at Paul and Barnabas and says, man, share with us. Give us a report. Tell us what happened. So they get up and they talk about the signs and wonders. They talk about the sorcerer who went blind in, in Cyprus. They talk about the signs and wonders in I, Iconium. They talk about the lame man that is able to walk in Lystra. They talk about all these Gentiles becoming followers of Christ. And the church begins in Turkey. I live in Turkey. Turkey is a country of 85 million people. There are 10 thousand self-identified followers of Jesus who gather on the weekends in a church. 10,000. They say there might be more, maybe double or triple of that. Okay, 30,000. 85 million people. It is a hard soil. Hard. But Don and I have a privilege to sit in the front row and to watch what God is beginning to do in Turkey. 
They're regularly baptizing people. Let me show you a picture. Regularly baptizing People are becoming followers of Jesus, and it's no easy way. To, you have to, a very extensive baptism course you've got to go through before they will baptize you. These are Muslim background believers, and I'm telling you, for many of them, they are kicked out of their home. Two weeks ago, we were sitting with a guy who works for a Bible correspondence course, and what they do is people, they, through a number of different ways, can write in and ask for a Bible, a New Testament. It's called an Injil. And so they follow up, but they've gotten so many people that have responded in the last two years that they called this guy that from two years ago who asked for a Bible, and they get him on the phone, and my, this guy who was talking to me about it said, I asked him, hey, you know, you, two years ago you asked for a Bible, and we just wondered if you got it. He goes, I did. Well, I just wondered what you did it with. He said, I read it. What happened? He said, I became a follower of Jesus. And so my friend, this guy that I was talking with, said, well, can I come meet with you? And he said, absolutely. So two of them got in a car, drove an hour and a half away from where I live. They go into the coffee shop, and there he sits. And he stands up, and he looks at them. And he says, you're the first Christians I've ever met. You're the first followers of Jesus I have ever met. He said, I got kicked out of my house. I've been, I was living on the street for six months. I lost my job. He goes through all of this. He says, but I love Jesus. And then he looks at him and says, would you meet with a friend of mine? A friend of mine had a vision. He had a dream, and in the dream, he, he dreamed that somebody would bring him a book. And then come to find out about 15 to 20 guys all had the same dream, that somebody would bring him a book. My friend was telling me, he said, one day I showed up to these guys that all had the vision. They all were sitting on the sand. At, they're, they're on the Mediterranean, the city. They said, you're all sitting on the sand with the book in their hand. Church started. We're seeing signs and wonders again as God begins to build or continues to build this church. Church in Turkey was started by Paul, and now we're seeing it rekindled here. After the service, I want to recommend to you to pick up this book right here. My wife will be outside there. There's no cost to it, but if you want to make a donation, all the money goes to the benevolence for the Turkish church. But it's the stories of the people in the church, Muslim background believers who became followers of Jesus. And I'm telling you, it is the most fascinating story. It'll be on the second floor. I made a mistake last service. Second floor. Saw my wife as I was coming in. Wrong. Got it. Verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now, let me pause. What you see here, what James is about to do, Jesus' half-brother, who's the leader of the church, he's going to close this long discussion, that these debate that they've been having, and he does it in a very typical rabbinic way. What he does is he takes a proof text, and he like, takes a legal opinion, and he weaves them together. He does this out of the book of Amos. Amos, which we call a minor prophet. Minor in the sense that it's smaller than the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah, which we call major prophets. Now, here it is, verse 16. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it 
that the remnant of, a remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. All right. That's crystal clear, isn't it? All right. Let me see if I can help you understand what this means. Amos, this prophet, is saying, the house of David. The house of David was raised up. David was the second king of Israel. He was the great king of Israel. Every other king was measured against David. They were like their father David. They were not like their father David. David ruled, the house of David ruled over Israel. But then there was a civil war, and it was divided. Ten tribes went one way. Two tribes stayed under the rule of the Davidic king from the line of David. That's what the tent means. It means the line of David. Amos says, the line of David right now has very, very small group of people. In fact, the day is coming, Amos says, when there will be no Davidic king who will sit over the house, from the house of David over the Jews. But, but, he says, the day is coming when God is going to repair the Davidic kingdom, when God is going to repair it, and he's going to raise up a king who will sit on David's throne, and he will rule not only the Jews, but he will rule the nations. Well, we know that as we stand on this side of the cross and we look back that that's Jesus. It's Jesus who sits on the throne. It's Jesus who is from the line of David. It is Jesus who will rule not only over the Jews, but also the nations. Now, maybe you're still going, help me. Okay, let me give you one more piece here. Anu, Anu used to be a worship leader here. I love Anu. And Anu was born in India, and he moved here with his family. And then he started to apply and work at becoming an American citizen. He went to the classes. He had the exam, pretty extensive exam. He had an interview, pretty tough interview. He had all this background check. And then the day came when he was going to be sworn in as an American citizen, and I had the opportunity to go. So I sat there and watched this, and it's just a very, man, meaningful time. There's this one thing where they have the call of nations, where they they list all the nations of the people sitting there that are now going to become American citizens. And part of a new become an American citizen is he had to take his Indian passport, and he had to turn it in. He's no longer an Indian citizen. He is now an American citizen. You ask a new, what are you? I'm an American. He has a Turkish heritage but he is an American with an American passport. See, what Amos is saying is that if these guys became Jews, if all the Gentiles became Jews, then they're not Gentiles anymore. They've got a Jewish passport. They remain Jewish, or they remain Gentile. They remain the nations. And so he uses this argument that the Davidic, uh, the Davidic king will come and sit on the throne and he will oversee not only the Jews, but he will also be the king to the Gentiles. They are not Jews. Now let me close this out. Look at verse 17. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. The Gentiles... I mean, this is exactly what we've learned in Genesis 12 too. Let me put it up here on the screen. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The Davidic king will come and bless the nations 
with his rule. Now, James goes on to say in verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God with circumcision. Stop it. Let's not do it anymore. Here it is. We, as a council, have come to agreement. But now James adds four asks. And we don't know if this came up in the conversation. It's not clear. But regardless, James adds four asks. Look with me at verse 20. But should we write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood? Okay, why? Verse 21. For from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What's James saying? There's Jewish people everywhere, all over the place. In my particular country, there's history of them being all over the place. Their writings that tell us they were all over the place. And so he is saying... As the gospel's going out, as a guy like Paul, Paul's first tendency was always to go to the synagogue and preach to the Jews. And then the Jews become followers of Christ. And now the church has started. And then he would go to the Gentiles and preach to the Gentiles. And they would become followers of Christ. And now they're added to the church. Now Jew and Gentile are sitting next to each other. And he's saying, in order not to offend the Jewish people, he says to the Gentiles, I want to ask you of a couple things. For the sake of your Jewish brothers and sisters. For the sake of unity. Now, what does he ask him? He asked him about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now, in this culture at that time, almost every city of, of some size would have a temple. Big cities would have several temples. City of Ephesus, Book of Ephesians. I've been many times. They got a lot of temples. There were people who were completely devoted to the God of a temple. Let me show you a picture of it of one of the temples. This is the temple of Artemis that is in the city of Sardis that you read about in Revelation 3. And what you would do is you would come and you would bring an offering. There were some who were fully devoted and they bring the offering that was a way in which they thought they were truly worshiping. Others did it out of luck. You know, others did it because they wanted to cover their bases. You know, I, I want some good luck, so I don't want this God mad at me, so I'm gonna bring something to this God. Others did it because they were part of a guild Guilds, silversmiths, you read about that pretty soon when you get to the city of Ephesus and the silversmith guild. Paul was part of the tent-making guild. You had pottery guilds. You had all kind of guilds, a collection of workers that kind of like a union for them. Well, they were connected to a temple. This particular guild would kind of go to this temple, and many of the temples had a party room underneath. And they would go and have their meetings, and part of their meetings then would to eat sacrificed meat to the God of the, that particular temple. And then others would just do it because they just went along. They didn't want to be on the outside. And frankly, that was a struggle for Christians. When Christians quit going to the temple, they were seen as outsiders. You would go to the temple, you would bring your cow, ox, and whatever it might be, and it would be slaughtered, and it would be slaughtered in a way that would offend the Jews. It wouldn't be koshered. It would be killed in a different way. That's what it talks about, blood and those kind of things. Then a piece of that meat would be taken to the altar to be given to the god or goddess of that particular temple. Then the priests or the priestess would take a large chunk of the meat for the priest or the priestess of that temple to feed them. And then the guy who brought the, the sacrifice, he would take a piece, and that's what he would barbecue for his meeting. 
or he would take it home and give it to his family. The rest of it, because it's a gift, you got to leave it, the rest of it was taken to the butcher. Every temple had a butcher shop associated with it. And so you would go and get your meat at one of the temple butcher shops. The problem now is that you become a follower of Christ, and now you're going to church with some Jewish folks, and now you're going to have a big party, and you're inviting all these people to your house. James is saying, don't serve that meat. It will offend them. It wasn't prepared correctly. It was dedicated to a God. Because, see, the thinking was, if you ate meat sacrificed to a God, you were worshiping that God. Now, Paul comes along in Corinthians, and he talks about someone who has a strong conscience and a weak conscience in eating meat. But that's for another day. But James is saying, for the sake of unity in the church, don't do it. Don't do it. Now, if you're like me, then where are they going to get their meat? I didn't even think about it. So I called a Jewish rabbi friend of mine and asked him. He said, oh, Jews had their own butcher shops all over the place because of that very reason. They would kosher their own meat, and Christians began to buy from the Jewish butcher. He says a second thing. He talks about sexual immorality. Now, why? I mean, one of the things, it's important that we as Christians live lives that are above reproach. But it also has to do with the temple. Because many of the temples had priests and priestesses that you would go have sex with. You'd bring an offering of money and you would have sex with the priest or priestess. And it was a way to worship this particular God. So James is saying, wisely, stop that. Wisely, don't do that. One, you're going to offend your Jewish friend. But second, it's not good for you. Now, is he saying these are mandatory? If you want to become a Christian, these things you have to do. Is that what he's saying? No. Uh uh-uh. uh. He's not saying you have to do these things to become a Christian. He talks about Christian becoming a follower of Christ through grace and grace alone, but it's an implication of being a follower of Christ. As a follower of Christ, I want to ask the question how do I live in unity with those that I'm going to church with? All right, let me finish this up. Look with me at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Now, we're not going to take time to read the letter because the letter is basically everything that's already been said. We're not going to trouble the Gentiles. We're going to ask them to abstain from these four things. But do you notice they just don't give it to Paul and Barnabas? You know, Paul and Barnabas are going back up to Antioch. Man, why not just give it to Paul and Barnabas? Why are you going to send people along? Because the leadership knew, for credibility's sake, we need to send other people along. Because the Judaizers who are in Antioch would just go, well, that's Paul, that's Barnabas. They wrote that on the way. But if they send others along from the leadership of the church, they can say, no, Paul and Barnabas, they didn't have anything to do with it, man. This is from the leadership of the church. All right. Go back and look with me at verse 11. Verse 11. This is Peter. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. No, it is not circumcision. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are chosen just as they are. The seven ecumenical councils sought to protect the gospel the first church council in Acts 15 sought to protect the, count, 
the gospel. Why? Because what we have done for 2,000 years is either we have added to the gospel or we have taken away from the gospel. It is all with good intentions to make Jesus look even better. But as we've done, we have distorted the gospel. The Judaizers had become a a Jew and and obey the law. That's how you become a follower of Christ. But you know what? In the church, being a pastor for a long time, I have heard numerous times people will come into my office, and when you cut it all away, here's what their theology is. Here's what they really think, that God has a gigantic scale in the sky, and on one end, he puts our good deeds, and on the other, our bad deeds, and I've got to keep this thing tilted in the right direction. And I live in a country when many of our neighbors believe the very same thing. It's a works righteousness. I got to clean up my act before I come to God. I got to do certain things in order for God to love me. And if God is going to really love me, then I really need to do these things in particular. Those are not true. The gospel, what does the gospel say? The gospel says, you are far worse than you can ever begin to imagine. You think you're bad? You're worse than that. But the gospel goes on to say that God loves you and delights in you and grace is greater than any issue that you bring before God. You are more loved than you could ever believe. That Jesus is a far better forgiver than you are a sinner. The gospel says you do nothing. You don't bring a thing. Because frankly, if we're really going to hold this in the sky thing, you know what it says? It says in Leviticus 11 and also in 1 Peter, be perfect. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. There's the standard. Be that all the time without a mistake. See, unmerited favor says you have nothing that you bring that God will recognize as good. But he gives you something you have not earned or deserved because he is kind and gracious. The gospel says you are forgiven not based on what you have earned, but based on what God has given us in Christ. You know, in the church, we can add to the gospel, and we can add to the gospel by saying, well, if you really want to be an authentic follower of Christ, you need to be baptized. Or if you're really going to be an authentic follower of Christ, you need to speak in tongues. Or there's some churches that say authentic followers of Christ, women don't wear makeup, they wear dresses, and there's no instruments in the church. That's what an authentic follower of Christ is. We have taken things and we've added them on to the gospel. Here's what an authentic follower of Christ is. It might not be circumcisions, but it's these things. And frankly, folks, when I pastored here, I did that at times. Suddenly, I didn't mean to, but I did. I would say, I would say, here's what an authentic follower of Christ is. It's someone who gives. It's someone who's in a small group. It's someone who comes to church. It is someone who is serving. That's an authentic follower of Christ. No, an authentic follower of Christ is one who is saved by grace. Those are implications of grace. Do I think those are important? Absolutely, I do. Absolutely, I think those things are important, but they don't make you a Christian. The work of grace from God through Christ makes you a Christian. Those are indications of the fruit Not only do we add, but we also subtract. You know how we subtract? We subtract from the gospel when we say things like, you know, Jesus, 
I believe he died on the cross. Man, I believe he's the son of God. But I believe there's many ways to heaven, and this just happens to be my way. But there's many roads up the mountain to meet God. And really what God is interested in is that you just be sincere. You need to be committed and completely sincere in your beliefs. Sincere. You're sincerely wrong. There are not options that God gives us. There is one gospel, and it is through Christ and Christ alone. There are not other ways. Don and I sit down with the people in our country that we've become friends with, and we talk about spiritual things, and it's interesting what they say to us. They say, you know, for us to know God, we need to learn God's language because there's prayer five times a day in my neighborhood, and it's not in the language of the people. It's not in Turkish. It's in Arabic. And if you want to know God's book, you got to learn Arabic. And so what happens is a lot of Turks then, a lot of Turks will memorize large sections of their book, and they don't know what it says. They go, I've got to make sure that I keep this thing tilted in the right direction. I've got to make sure that I do more good than bad. And then even at the end of the day, I'm not sure what God will do. He's capricious. And the gospel comes along and says that God got off his throne and he stepped into time and became a man and the word became flesh and walked among us and he spoke our language. And the book has been put into our language and God has made himself known to us. He has come to us. He has revealed himself to us. It's not what we do, but it's what he has done on our behalf. God takes the hit so that we might be reconciled to him. My wife and I, Don and I, were in, in Holland, Michigan years ago, planting a church. Planting a church for non-Dutch people, if you know anything about Holland. It was a really fast-growing area at the time, and we were there planting a church for new people who are moving in the, into, the, into the region. And I was reading the Grand Rapids Press one day when I came across the story of a mother and a son. And the eyewitnesses described it this way, that a mother and a son were walking down the street together when a car, a big truck, came down the street and was careening out of control, going left and right. And later they found out that the driver was drunk. And as the mother sees the truck coming, she just freezes and stops with her son at her side. And then the truck comes up on the sidewalk and starts barreling down the sidewalk. And all the mother could think about doing is reaching down and holding up her child over her head. And the truck came and hit her in the chest. And the child went flying. Thankfully, he landed on grass and he lived, but the mother was killed instantly. Do you think the mother went over to the child at that and said, you know, have you been good enough? Have you earned this from me? Should I really save you? No, a mother has a love for a child that goes beyond explanation. She did what any mother would do. She thought, I'm going to save my child. God comes as a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he stands in the way of a truck that is careening out of control called judgment. And he takes us and he lifts us up out of the judgment and takes the judgment on himself so that you and I might have life. Because you're good. Because you're good? No, because you aren't. Because I'm not. That's the essence of the gospel. Let's pray.
Father God, we praise you and thank you for the richness of the gospel. We thank you that you love us, that you have sought us out, not because of things we have done, but because of what you have done for us in Christ. Thank you for the early counsel that they sought to protect this. They wanted to make sure the gospel was protected. And we thank you for the Christians throughout ages who have done the very same thing. And I pray for those of us in this room that have a distorted view of the gospel, that somehow we have added to the gospel, that you would speak to us, that we would be able to stand before you and know it is unmerited favor. There is no scale. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.